You're listening to Camayo's Compliance Talk by our in-house compliance expert, Michelle Camayo. Join Michelle on the latest developments, questions, and conversations surrounding employee benefit issues organizations are navigating today. We have a special guest returning this week, Nicole Cam. She's an employment attorney slash partner at Fisher Phillips. I know that she has some really valuable information to share with us today. So, Nicole, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me again. It's good to be back. All right. So what we're going to talk about today, the meat of the presentation or discussion is Nicole is going to go over the California Supplemental Paid Sick Leave. I did create an alert. Our marketing team sent it to all of our employers. And I know this is a very hot topic. So having Nicole here today with her expertise as an employment law attorney is crucial and super helpful. She's also going to talk about FSCRA regulations that have been revised and the EEOC releasing additional guidance on testing. Just This is just a reminder for infectious disease plans. These are required. Uh, Cal OSHA mandated that an infection disease plan now be a part of your IIPP. And our Bolton Safety and Health team has created a template not only for schools, as you can see there, but for general industries as well. So if you are a Bolton client and you're on the line, please contact the Bolton Safety team and we can make sure you get a copy of that template, not only for schools, but for, like I said, any industry, if you're a Bolton client. The last time we were together, I was spoke at length about COVID testing. I still get many questions about this uh, on a weekly, you know, even daily basis. So we're going to talk about it again uh, this time around. And I'll update you on some pending legislation and uh, the, the stimulus packages, and we'll go over some facts. So without further delay, let's talk about something that is just, Nicole, I'm, I, I can't tell you enough. I'm so glad that you're here because I know that we have listeners on the line. This impacts, and so please um, feel free to take it from here. Wonderful. Thank you so much again. Um, it's great to be with everybody. I know there's a lot of new uh, changes in the law since we've last chatted. I know Michelle's been keeping you posted, but there's, you know, in employment law, there's always something to uh, dig into. So the first topic that we're going to be spending some time on is the California Supplemental Paid Leave. This was signed by the governor on September 9th and adds additional labor code sections that address both the executive order impacting food sector workers that's been in place since April and adds a new labor code section, it's 284.1, and then some following sections, that's the primary one, that addresses non-food sector workers and provides paid sick leave for certain employers. So when this came down, uh, we kind of heard it brewing, there'd been a lot of talk on this, and the question was, was it only going to be codifying the executive order from April regarding food sector workers, or was it going to be broader? And the state has taken several uh, steps in different localities. Many localities have implemented their own COVID supplemental paid sick leave laws. Los Angeles, Long Beach, Oakland, San Francisco, San Diego, a lot of areas that you wouldn't even think about, like Santa Rosa and San Mateo, 
um, Sacramento have all implemented a local ordinance that is intended to close the gap between those employers who are not covered by the FFCRA. So those employers with 500 or more employees generally, and each ordinance has its own specific requirements, its own categories that leave is permitted, uh, own employees that are covered, and definitions of, of which employees are covered, which employees may be carved out, whether the leave can be offset by employers that are complying with FFCRA, even if they're not required to. So it's really important to be looking at where your employees are working and what is the applicable law, local law, state law, and federal law that applies at that point. With regard to now this California Supplemental Paid Sick Leave, it's AB 1867. Um, and in terms of the food sector workers, it essentially took the executive order and turned it into a statute, Labor Code 284. Um, very minimal differences, but essentially covering those workers um, formally under a California statute. Um, and those workers include farm workers, agricultural workers, those workers within the retail food supply chain, um, food delivery drivers, grocery workers, certain restaurant workers, uh, warehouse facilities, fast food. So it's, it's pretty broad um, under that, that industry and it covers certain wage orders in, in particular and then uh, workers that work in conjunction with those, um, with those industries. Um, that is something that has been in place and that employers that are subject should have been complying with. The big change is that this new bill extends these requirements to other employers with 500 or more employees in the United States. And that is different than some of the local ordinances. Some of the local ordinances, uh, for example, Los Angeles would be 500 or more in Los Angeles. So we're looking at nationwide under the new bill. Um, those employees um, are now entitled to supplemental COVID paid sick leave that is similar to the leave that's provided under the FFCRA but does have distinctions. And one other distinction is that the, the new bill covers those healthcare workers and emergency responders that have been carved out from the FFCRA regardless of the employer's size. So again, the state is saying we want to close any gaps and we want to provide this supplemental paid sick leave essentially to all workers in California. Um, the, the permitted use is slightly different than FFCRA as well. Um, employees who are subject to the new California bill can use this paid sick leave if they're subject to a federal, state, or local quarantine or isolation order related to COVID-19, if they're advised by a healthcare provider to self-quarantine or self-isolate, that's similar to FFCRA. Um, but the third reason is if the worker is prohibited from working by the worker's hiring entity due to health concerns related to transmission of COVID-19. So those are the three categories. There's not a category for time off to care for others. There's not a category for time off if a school's closed or a daycare center or a senior facility is closed. Um, but if the worker is prohibited from working because of the health concerns, for example, in a potential exposure um, or symptoms or a diagnosis, all of those can fall under that third category that the employee would be entitled to this additional paid time off. Um, this was signed, just so everybody knows, this was signed on September 9th, and then there was a 10-day grace period for employers to implement. So Saturday, the, the 19th, is when this goes into effect. 
And we're uh, internally, we're putting the finishing touches on a policy. And as every employer knows, you know, first line of defense is a strong compliant policy. So we are now putting that together um, for both food sector and non-food sector workers, incorporating the language from the bill, from the statute, um, into our policy and, and put it, making that available for our clients and, and friends of the firm. So if anybody wants to take a look at that at some point, um, please feel welcome to reach out. In terms of the amount of leave, it's similar to the FFCRA in that full-time employees, essentially those who average about 40 hours a week, are entitled to 80 hours of paid sick leave. Um, and then there's a, a calculation and different instruction with regard to part-time workers and those workers who work variable schedules. Michelle put a link to the FAQs that the Labor Commissioner put out. Very helpful information here. Uh, thankfully, they were very uh, quick to issue this in following up on the bill um, because there's always open questions. And sometimes it takes quite a bit of time to get a, a, a further interpretation from the uh, different authorities. So we have FAQs. And in the FAQs, there is not only an explanation of how to calculate the, the amount of paid sick leave for part-time workers, but there's examples of, of how to break this down and, and put it together. So that's a very helpful resource. There is a notice requirement that has to be posted in the workplace. Michelle also provided that link. Just came out yesterday, and that needs to be either posted in the workplace or distributed the statute uh, notes by electronic means. So if you have employees that, um, you know, are, are maybe not coming into a central location, you can distribute it electronically. Now, the statute does point out that the, in order to be entitled to this leave, the employee has to leave the person's home or residence to perform work. So this doesn't apply to work from home, telecommuters. This is really for those going out into uh, the public, out into the field to do their job. They would be entitled to this particular leave. Um, now, that doesn't mean that there's not a different leave that might apply, and that's why, again, it's important to look at the different, whether there's a local leave that might be a little bit more expansive and provide additional protections or additional reasons why the paid leave is provided, for example, the school closure or to care for others. Um, so that's it's very important, and we're actually putting together also kind of a comparison of the different um, local leaves and then the state leave, and then how employers can comply with both. And again, you want to be providing the most generous benefits to employees. So, um, so if it's the local that's more generous, you comply with that. If it's the state, you look at that. Uh, the law also says that to be entitled to leave, the employee has to be unable to work. And so that's similar to FFCRA as well and goes somewhat hand in hand with the uh, leaving the, the home or the residence, not the telecommuting, not the work from home, but unable to work uh, because of one of these reasons. In terms of the effective date, I mentioned that it goes into effect on the 19th. In addition to uh, going into effect in terms of the policy, there's also a requirement that similar to existing paid sick leave, existing California paid sick leave, that says that you have to, employers have to put the amount of available supplemental paid sick leave on the pay stub. And that has to be in place by the next full pay period following the enactment of, of the regulation. And so employers wanna be working with their payroll company, working with their payroll providers, um, or handling internally. So similar to you have California paid sick leave or local paid sick leave, just for any purposes, you're gonna have a separate line item for supplemental paid sick leave under 
now Labor Code 284 and 284.1. Um, okay, and that's so something that... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I'm curious. Here, I know, Rob. If someone, if an employer is subject to a local man or local ordinance, so they're already providing this type of leave and they can credit it towards this particular supplemental paid sick leave, do they still have to set up a separate uh, code on the, the employee's pay stub? Yeah, that's a great know question. That because, well, we do know that employers are allowed to offset or credit any leave that's already been provided for the same reasons, under the same terms and conditions, and in the same amount. So I didn't mention that employees, in terms of how much to pay, um, the employee is entitled to the highest uh, of the regular rate of pay, which if anybody has questions about how to calculate the regular rate of pay, it has to include all forms of compensation, state minimum wage or local minimum wage, but it's capped at $511 a day uh, or $5,110 per employee. So if an employer was providing additional leave but at a lower rate, or if they provided maybe under the, the two-thirds rate under FFCRA, they could true up that amount to the total 511 and credit that against um, anything that they would be required to provide here. I do still recommend that employers put the available sick leave, employers that are covered put the available sick leave on the pay stub, even if they've been complying with uh, a local law, just for accounting purposes, for pay stub compliance, I think it's, it's important to have all that information available to the employee, whether or not it's expressly required or just a recommended best practice. Okay, great. And, and this is California employees only, right? I know that you said that, but I just want to clarify that because we I had a, an employer call me this morning and they have um, uh, the majority of their employers, employees are actually outside of California. And uh -huh. so I wanted to, to confirm with you that this is for those firms that are employers that have employees nationally, this is only going to be applicable to the California employees. In a sense. So in terms of yeah. looking whether the employer is a covered employer, you look at total employees in the nation in terms mm -hmm. of whether the employee is an eligible employee. So it's similar to kind of that uh, FMLA analysis, whether you know you have 50 or more in 75 mile radius, that kind of thing. You need to look at one, are you a covered employer? And two, is the employee eligible? And the eligible employees are the ones that are working in California, performing work in California. If you have an employee that's in and out of California, you know, that raises a different question. And there's been recent case law on which laws apply to employees that are based in different states or touch different states. And that's kind of a, a deeper analysis. But uh, generally, it applies to employees working within California. Thank you so um, much. Of course, of course. In terms of the uh, that that comparison, in terms of what to pay the employee, the highest of the regular rate of pay, state minimum wage or local minimum wage, I do want to point out that similar to the local uh, supplemental paid sick leave, there's quite a few local uh, minimum wage ordinances. And uh, I actually put together a chart recently. There had been a lot of updates July 1 to the local minimum wages. We, we included that, and now we've expanded it to include the increases starting January 1. There's going to be some different changes that go into effect, including the state minimum wage January 1. So we've added another column for that. If anybody's interested, feel free to reach out. I'm happy to share that with you. It's a really good reference. 
Um, a few other just points about this before we move on. Um, this is available for immediate use. This is not something that accrues over time or that uh, can be delayed 90 days like some paid sick leave policies. It needs to be provided on oral or written request by the employee. So similar to California's standard paid sick leave. But the question has come up already, you know, what kind of documentation can an employer require? And there is an FAQ from the department, uh, from the DLSC on this issue. And essentially what the labor commissioner is saying is that an employer should not deny the ability of an employee to use this leave because of a lack of certification, um, because of that language that it's, it needs to be provided on oral or written request. And the, um, the bill is silent as to whether or not you can ask for a doctor's note, whether or not you can ask for further certification. But the FAQ does point out that there may be certain circumstances when asking for additional documentation is reasonable. And the example they give is, you know, if the employee says, hey, I need time off for these reasons, or one of these reasons, but then you find out they were at the beach for the day or out at the park or doing something that's inconsistent with the need for the leave. In that case, that would be a reasonable um, situation that you can request additional documentation. Um, you Employers cannot require employees to use any other kind of available leave first. You can't say that you have to exhaust your existing paid sick leave or PTO or any other leave or benefits available before um, triggering the California supplemental COVID paid sick leave. Um, and there's another requirement under the food sector workers that uh, that employees that are subject to that section um, be allowed to wash their hands every 30 minutes. And that's part of the executive order that came out in April as well. Um, every 30 minutes or additional opportunities as needed. So that's something to just keep in mind and make sure it's paid time. It's not going to be something that they clock out for. Um, making sure that you're enforcing that and including that in your policy as it applies to such workers. So Michelle, Nicole, I'm going to. Yes, yes. So okay. I want to <laughs> sort of emphasize this because I've gotten seven or eight different questions that that I think it, it wasn't clear that this is only extends to other employers besides the the, the food sector workers with 500 right. plus employees in the U.S. So uh, if someone had asked, um, you know, I understand we need to give 80 hours of extra pay if and when an employee mm -hmm. fixed COVID, but by giving every employee at our company the extra hours on the pay stub, it affects our balance sheet. Being a small business, being a small business, this could break us. Well, this applies mm -hmm. to employers only to employers with 500 plus employees in the U.S. So for those who are asking, does it apply only to employers with 500 or more employees? That generally, yes. It, it, you know, it's private employers um, that mm -hmm. have 500 or more employees in the U.S. So if you're on the line mm -hmm. and you have less than 500 employees, this does not apply to you. Only this does not apply to you, right? but you should be complying already with the FFCRA, which is similar and also provides the additional 80 hours for certain um, emergency paid sick leave and then has the added com component of the emergency FMLA leave. So if you're, this is intended to capture those employees who have been exempt from the FFCRA this whole time and some have chosen to offer it, some have not. Uh, the benefit of the FFCRA, of course, is that you, you can get a tax credit for those hours that are provided. Here, there is no similar 
um, tax credit that the state has comp uh, contemplated. And so that's something for those additional employers who are under 500 but have been excluding healthcare providers and emergency responders from the FFCRA, and I'm gonna go into that a little bit more when we talk about the amendments to the DOL regulations, but if you're an employer that has been exempting yourself from the FFCRA because you're in that carve out um, before it was amended, and that applies to employers of any size, um, then you may wanna consider whether you know, triggering FFCRA benefits the company more because then you can seek that tax credit. Um, so that, that's kind of it. But yes, you're absolutely right that this is intended for the larger employers, 500 or more employees in the U.S. If you're smaller, you're looking at FFCRA, um, and then, you know, if there's any other kind of requirements that might be at play. Okay, yes, thank you for clarifying that. I'm just going to go over a few of these questions posed just to, to kind of say it in a different way. So someone asked, is this in addition to the original federal emergency paid sick leave? And I assume when that question was posed, they, they were referring to FFCRA. And as Nicole explained, it would not be in addition to, because this, the California Supplemental Paid Sick Leave 1867, is meant to fill in the gaps that, was, that were created from FFCRA. So if you're already providing FFCRA, if you're already doing that in a, and that applies to your organization, this 1867 does not apply to your organization. Correct. Anything to add to that, Nicole? Okay, got it. <laughs> so make sure. That's that. great. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's see. Um, employers under 500 employees do not have to comply with these requirements. That is absolutely right. And that is because you're already complying with FFCRA or you should be. Um, except for in the instance of healthcare providers or emergency responders, as Nicole expanded on that. Okay, I'm looking at this. Someone asked, Jez, do employers get payroll tax credit for this? And Nicole, you did answer that. I was also curious, I'm glad you said that, is FFCRA, they do. For 1867, right. they do not. Currently, yep, as it's drafted, we, there is no tax credit, and that's, you know, that's unfortunately a downside of this, but, uh, but for those employers who may now kind of opt into the FFCRA, that would be a consideration. Okay, we have a, a question here, and I, I'm looking at it. I, I, want to, I want to bring this up because I, I want the, the person who posed the question to be able to get some comment on this, but my disclaimer is it's, it may be it may be something we we have to take offline. So the question is, if the employer requires the employee to take EPSL, so now it sounds like FSCRA, due to the mm -hmm. employee's stated exposure to someone with COVID-19, and directs the employee to self-isolate and seek guidance from their healthcare provider, what if after 10 days the employee's healthcare provider says the employee doesn't have COVID and should be allowed to return. The, they, the, uh, question, the person who posed the question says, we documented what we did and why, uh, including the safety of others at the work site and the CDC's recommendations for self-isolation. Is the documentation on our actions and intent sufficient to support our placing the employee on leave and paying EPSL? Okay. So, so it sounds like we are talking about leave under the FFCRA. Um, 
for that particular leave, you want to be collecting certain documentation um, so that you can seek that tax credit and for purposes of just properly documenting. And the FFCRA the regulations do mention specific information that you want to capture, including the name of the employee, the dates that they're out, the qualifying reasons, so what's the triggering reason that they would be entitled to the paid leave, and then a statement that they're unable to work because of that reason. Um, and it's, it's helpful to have a form. We've created a form. It might be available on our website. If not, I'm happy to share it. But that is a, a way to, to ensure that you're kind of ticking all the boxes that you need to do so that you can seek that tax credit and so that you can maintain that proper file. I'm thinking as I'm reading through this, Nicole, it, it, the, because I can see it, uh, the, the question. So I'm mm -hmm. kind of reading through it and I'm thinking, okay, what, what is exactly is the question? And it sounds like the question might be more of, well, the doctor said he can come back to work at 10 days, but we're going to keep him on leave for 14. And will we still get our tax credit if we keep him on leave for 14, even though the doctor says they can come back in 10? Okay. Okay. So the tax credit under the FFCRA is only for the 80 hours. So once the 80 hours, at least under that portion, once the 80 hours are exhausted, you're not going to, if you pay additional paid sick leave, you're not going to get the tax credit beyond that. But the employee may have available paid sick leave just on an underlying policy. They may have available vacation or PTO or floating holidays. And if not, um, there's also the possibility that if they're, uh, you know, if they're unable to work for a health-related reason, they could try and seek SDI for a period of time, um, and that's something that the EDD has noted as well. Uh, yes, that thank you, Nicole. That, more on point? That, okay. Yes. <laughs> well, well I, I'm not sure. So the person who posed that question, if you have any follow-up questions, Oh, okay. She said I did mean 10 days, not 14. Okay. All right. Well, I oh, okay. Hope, um, I hope we properly answered uh, that question. If not, and you're listening, please feel free to um, to send me an email offline. You, you you should have my email address or a link to at least contact me. All right. I know we exhausted that subject. Um, well, maybe not exhausted. It's so new. It, it, I can <laughs> I'm tell sure you, there's going to be a lot of questions I, to come. Yeah. Right. Right. I, I can tell you all on the line that you know, you know, I'm the benefits compliance leader here at Bolton, so my subject matter expertise is in benefit compliance and anything that sort of touches uh, your insurance, let's say. So when I when we get into talk about paid leaves, um, sick leaves, and anything that that has to do with, with employment and employment law, then I lean very heavily on Nicole. As an employment attorney, because that's just not where I am. So some of my questions, I'm just like, wow, really, what would I do? I'm not sure. This is so complicated. <laughs> so thank you. Happy to be here. All right. That, yeah. Uh, oh, I have one more question come in. Is a couple questions come in? Is it true that in order to obtain the tax credit, we must provide documentation from the doctor, school, or daycare uh, with with regards to FFCRA request forms? which requests mm -hmm. the name of the, uh, do you know, Nicole, is the IRS, the IRS would probably have to audit uh, in that. Yes. Event. Yeah. So we're still, you know, we're still kind of, uh, it's an open question about how strictly they're going to scrutinize. We're hoping that they're, you know, it's, it's implemented fairly leniently, the, the tax credit. Um, certainly, if it's possible to gather that information, that would be helpful. So if it's a school closure, usually there's an email or some note that went out. You can ask for a copy of that. 
Um, if it was advised by a healthcare provider or for some other reason, you can ask for documentation. But what the uh, what the guidance has been kind of consistently for this period is healthcare providers and hospitals and medical centers are so overwhelmed and and trying to prioritize the uh, the need at this point that insisting on doctor's notes or requiring doctor's notes um, is not advisable. Now you can certainly communicate to the employee that you're reserving the right to request additional documentation at a future date or if needed, and that will kind of leave the door open to uh, and put them on notice that you may be circling back and asking for additional confirmation in the event that it's necessary or that you uh, it, it's kind of a little bit still unclear um, the reason, the exact category that uh, was the qualifying reason for the time off. Um, it, it's it's I'm it's, I'm happy that you said that Nicole because there was actually a question where someone said you know LA County requested not to ask for doctor's notes due to the medical care providers being inundated just like you said uh, so you're absolutely right yeah I'm, yeah yeah I'm glad you addressed that yeah you know you're right that there are different kind of at each level there's been a different interpretation on this and LA County did advise not to request a doctor's note now again I still would you know, reserve the right because in the future things may calm down. You may have the ability to get that, but but insisting or denying leave for a lack of it—that's what's uh, recommended to avoid. Okay, great. All right. Well, I think it, it's with time to move on to our next slide. So I'll move here so you can talk about the the revised FFCRA regulations, please. Great. Okay. So uh, back in August, probably everybody heard about a case that came out of New York. A federal judge ruled that the uh, Department of Labor didn't justify sufficiently parts of the FFCRA regulations and struck those parts down. And that left a lot of open questions. You know, we're here in California. Does that New York case apply to us here in California? Um, how, to what extent is it, is it enforceable? How are employers going to approach this? And we actually revised our FFCRA policy in view of that and created two different versions, kind of the conservative and the more uh, risk tolerant version where the one saying the case does apply and the one other saying the case doesn't apply. In response, the Department of Labor revised the FFCRA regulations they go into effect yet or went into effect yesterday on uh, September 16th and the main points that uh, that were hit and a lot of these came from the New York case and some were addressed and others were not others were reaffirmed as you know this is what we said and this is what we meant and so that there's still the question of whether or not there's going to be future challenge um, so the first one is, you know, we've kind of talked quite a bit about healthcare providers and how uh, certain healthcare providers and emergency responders, there's a carve out under the FFCRA for those workers. And that definition under the uh, regulations was quite broad. It included not just those providing healthcare services, but those working for an employer providing healthcare services. So the IT department or the admin staff or the janitorial staff, it was extremely broad and much broader than under the FMLA. Um, so this was raised in this court case and in response to the Department of Labor narrowed that definition to exclude only those employees who are in fact healthcare providers as defined under the FMLA and those providing diagnostic services, preventive services, 
treatment, you know, actual hands-on treatment that's necessary to providing patient care. So that could include maybe a lab tech who's processing tests or somebody who's in that, that uh, supply chain of those services, but it's not intended to cover all employees of a healthcare facility or of a medical office um, quite as broadly as originally defined. So, you know, we, we have talked to doctor's offices, I've talked to dentist offices during this period where this was still an open question, and now it's, it's clearer as to which employers are, um, are, which employees are covered and which can still have an argument that they're excluded. And, you know, again, on balance, since there is a tax credit for the FFCRA leave, um, you know, we tended to kind of advise the conservative approaches to provide, you'll get the tax credit, you know, provided everything goes smoothly. Um, so that's a consideration for anybody who has previously attempted to exclude certain employees who now may need to reconsider. Uh, the next item is that um, in the New York case, the court said that the, it wasn't necessary that work be available in order to be entitled to leave. So it left open a question, you know, if an employee is furloughed or if an employee is put on an unpaid leave of absence, are they entitled to FFCRA um, leave? And that was something before the initial FAQs and regulations came out was a question that we went over quite a bit because at the time, this was back in, in March and April, um, you know, there were so many furloughs and there were so many contemplated furloughs. And so that was the question. And it, we didn't know until we got the regulations and the FAQs and that clarified the answer was no, that, you know, if an employee was furloughed, then there's no work available and they're not entitled to this leave. Um, the Department of Labor reaffirmed that leave can only be taken if the employee has work available from which to take leave. Um, so this is somewhat different than the New York case, and again, you know, raises that question of is this going to be subject to further challenge? But for now, this is the law that we have in place, and um, and you know, now the conservative approach is to comply with the revised regulations until we have further contest or further challenge. In terms of intermittent leave, this was also one that went uh, against the New York case holding. Um, in the prior regulations there was a requirement that the employer agree to provide intermittent leave. And intermittent leave would only be permitted under certain circumstances. It's not, for example, um, you know, if, for, if you're having symptoms and seeking a diagnosis or if you've been uh, advised to quarantine, but it's more for those workers who are uh, using the leave for purposes of school closure or daycare closure. Um, or something else along those lines, because the intent is to make sure that you're isolating those individuals who may be, have been exposed or may be um, diagnosed from coworkers. And in the New York case, um, they they push back against the requirement that the employer agree, and the revised regulations uh, reaffirm also that the uh, employee must obtain the employer's approval to take that intermittent leave and essentially held that that's consistent with FMLA principles and they're going to you know, abide by those principles. In terms of the supporting documentation, we talked about this a bit. Um, the question was, at what point uh, does the employee have to provide that documentation? Is it prior to leave, as a, you know, a potentially a precondition of the leave, or uh, at some other point? And 
this was consistent with the New York ruling and what the uh, amendment says is that employees must give their employer information supporting their need for leave as soon as practicable. Um, and that employers should essentially give employees a reasonable opportunity to provide that information. So, you know, being somewhat flexible, working with the employee uh, while at the same time gathering the necessary information to, to seek that tax credit and have, again, have your file in place. Um, and the last, you know, the open question is, you know, where do we take it from here and what do we comply with? Um, this is such a moving target, this area. For now, uh, we do recommend complying with these FFCRA revised regulations, um, knowing that there's a possibility that they may be subject to further challenge and further uh, case, uh, cases may be filed, litigation may be filed, but in different jurisdictions that may question these, even these revised edits. Nicole, I have a, I have a couple of questions here as I'm as I'm listening, and and it's really about a little bit of confusion for me with regard to the healthcare providers, you know, narrowing down that because it was so broad under FFCRA, the exclusion was so broad. So as I was listening, I thought, okay, what does this mean practically for a healthcare provider's office? So it. it I was thinking, okay, let me pose this example to you, and then we can hopefully talk through what does this now mean? What could this change for for that healthcare provider's office? So let's say we have a medical clinic mm -hmm. um, that employs janitorial staff, admin, you know, so clerks, healthcare providers, lab techs, et cetera. And they considered themselves completely exempt from FFCRA, and so they did not give any leave to any employee. So practically, does this change that stance? Do they now need to provide leave to those that are not uh, now considered healthcare providers under the narrow definition? Yes, so they would want to reassess all of the workers and determine who falls under, st who still falls under the, the carve out, the exception, um, and those who now are entitled to this leave. And then the question is uh, whether to, you know, if they took leave in the past but weren't paid, do you want to retroactively? Technically, this applies going forward. Um, but, uh, you know, if for some reason employee was out, maybe you dialogue with them and ask whether they wanted to be uh, provided the leave for the leave already taken or have it in the bank for any future needs. And if an employer did not post the FSCRA poster requirements because they consider themselves ex under this exclusion of healthcare providers, do they now need to send out that, that poster or do they only send it to those that it would apply to? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a good question. I would, uh, if I'm posting it in the workplace in a, a conspicuous location with all other work post, workplace posting, um, and and then if there's anybody that may be entitled that is not coming into the workplace to distribute to those employees that your position is is that they're now eligible for this leave. If it's um, if it's somebody that you're taking a position that they're not eligible, then I would clarify that because you don't want to have any sort of inconsistent messaging. Right. All right. So uh, summarizing this. There's a lot of changes between the two topics you just discussed for healthcare providers, you know, the emergency responders and the, the healthcare providers, because um, those that consider themselves exempt fully, it, it, that's not the case under the California ordinance now. And those that consider them, themselves 
in those under 500 um, or over 500 now have to, to make changes. Essentially, this is, this is how I, I see that. And I'm just talking through this, Nicole. It's just that mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. know person, you know, I know personally here at Bolton, we represent many different clients that fall under medical clinics or, or emergency responders. So the fact that they, that these employers do have to take action almost in any event because of either mm-hmm. one of these bills is, is impactful. It, it's really meaningful. You're absolutely so I wanted right. To, Right. So I wanted to put some emphasis on that for our listeners, that if you are an employer of a healthcare provider or emergency responder, then then what you're listening to right now is, is means that you will have to, to take action for sure, I would say. Exactly. Exactly. It's going to, yeah. yeah, I would just recommend doing a, you know, careful assessment analysis and, and then making mm-hmm. sure that you're complying with the applicable law. And again, there's some local laws that touched on this as well. So if you have employees working in those specific covered areas, you want to be aware of that as well. Right. All right. I have one question. It's not really on FSBRA regulations. But we have been asked to go over the paid sick leave again. So I assume that's the California supplemental paid sick leave. Uh, this employer says we provide sick leave for our employees and have that on their paycheck. I didn't quite understand what else needs to be added and how much. So first I want to stop and say, I'm not sure if this listener is, is uh, representing a company with over 500 employees or, uh, you know, emergency responder or healthcare provider. If you are a smaller company, if you're under 500 employees and you're not a, a healthcare provider, emergency responder, then that this would not that wouldn't apply to you at all. But if it does, you're asking what else needs to be done because you you've already put it on their paycheck for other sick leave that you've had to provide. So Nicole, could you kind of talk right. and discuss that right. again? And this actually does apply regardless if you're covered by the California Supplemental Paid Sick Leave or uh, a local or even the FFCRA. You know, we've recommended that employers add a line item for this additional paid sick leave that's on top of any existing leave. So we have the California requirements just for paid sick leave, you know, as the statute's been in place for quite a few years. And then we have different local paid sick leaves. But this is going to be an additional line item um, that either is FFCRA paid sick leave or California COVID-19 supplemental paid sick leave that is separately accounting for this additional leave entitlement, if that makes sense. Yes, I think it does. I think what you're saying is yes. You would yes. you would need to, yes. add, to add that to their pay se- separately. Yeah. Pay sub- yeah. And be added that, separately. Right. Yeah, the FSCRA is not a requirement, it's a recommendation versus the California is a requirement. Okay, thank you for that clarification. And someone asked how much more needs to be added. I'm not quite sure I understand that context. How much more? Uh, Nicole, do you, do you understand that? Yeah. I think it's possibly how much leave is the employee entitled to? What's the amount of leave? And for those full-time employees, uh, it's the, the 80 hours. And for the, full-time is generally as defined by the company or 40 hours within the past two weeks or prior two weeks before the need for leave. There's actually, I didn't mention this, there's another carve-out for firefighters 
scheduled to work more than 80 hours in a week, and they're entitled to as many hours as they were scheduled in the two weeks prior to the leave. So you want to keep that in mind if that applies to anybody listening. Um, and then part-time workers have different calculations based on how they, how many hours they work and how long they've been with the company. And the Labor Commissioner FAQs, if you look at FAQ 16, there's a very nice explanation as well as a, a calculation example. And so that's, um, that's the formula that we would use in order to, uh, to designate the amount of leave to part-time workers. Thank you. All right. Okay, let's move on to the next slide then. Nicole, this is another one of yours regarding the <laughs> guidance from EEOC. Okay, so more changes, more updates. The EEOC issued some additional FAQs on September 8th. Um, and some of them are actually very relevant. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example of a situation that impacted me just yesterday. Um, but the first one is there's some additional Q&A on COVID-19 testing. And essentially, it boils down to the EEOC reaffirming that it is acceptable um, to have employees take COVID-19 tests, particularly if they present a threat to the workplace. Uh, you do want to keep in mind that viral testing is permitted, but antibody testing is still not. Um, but the viral testing is consistent with CDC standards, with the ADA, uh, business necessity standard. Um, and what the EEOC does say is that this also, the current position may be subject to revision, and so employers should stay on top of these evolving laws as we go forward. In terms of employer inquiries, uh, the EEOC confirms that it's okay to ask if an employee has had a test, but this is what's kind of interesting. It's unclear or it's unresponded to, or this was not specifically addressed, whether an employer can ask the results of the test. And what that means to me is that you want to have a policy in place that clarifies and communicates that employees are not to come to the workplace or to uh, report to their shift if they have symptoms, if they uh, have been diagnosed, or if they've been exposed to anybody with symptoms or has been diagnosed with COVID-19. And so, you know, that, that you can ask about the, the, whether a test has been uh, provided, that open question of whether or not you can ask the results can be addressed in having those uh, restrictions and those requirements in place. The EEOC also points out um, that it's not necessary and not permitted to ask employees who are teleworking because it doesn't go for, toward the purpose of ensuring that safe workplace. And also that an employer cannot ask an employee if family members have been experiencing symptoms or have tested positive because that's a violation of GINA, the Genetic Information um, Act. But you can broaden that question to ask employees if they've had contact with anybody who's been diagnosed with COVID-19 or symptoms of COVID-19. And so that's a way, that's kind of a workaround to that restriction. In terms of sharing information about employees with COVID-19 or who've tested positive, you know, this is a question that's come up quite a bit. And we do have a, a one sheet that, that walks employers through the steps to take when, if and when an employee does test positive. Um, the main takeaway from the EEOC guidance is that it, it is acceptable for managers to report to higher management when they learn of a positive test, um, but generally when the information is distributed to the workforce or coworkers, you still need to maintain that confidentiality. So you don't want to identify the worker, you don't want to 
even confirm if an employee asks you, was it this person? You don't want to confirm that uh, that question. And the EEOC gives some sample language that an employer can use, such as someone at the location has tested positive, someone even on the fourth floor has tested positive, and acknowledges that in some smaller workplaces, it might be very easy for the employees to deduce who it was that, that was in fact positive, um, but that does not eliminate the need to keep confidentiality uh, at the front on the front burner and to be aware of that. Um, we do certainly advise and have been advising for quite some time to err on the side of transparency, um, both for purposes, it's multi-purpose, but uh, potentially under OSHA for the general duty clause to ensure a, a safe workplace, um, to avoid any uh, any concern that an employee may have been exposed and not notified of that exposure, and then to have the messaging come from the company rather than gossip or other side channels that would not be something that would benefit the company ultimately. This is the, so Nicole, the bullet that, oh, go ahead, yeah. Sorry, I was just saying, when you say you, you recommend transparency, just clarifying, not transparency regarding um, who it was, but regarding some, the, the contraction exactly. you know, someone testing yes. positive for, for COVID. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying that. Yes. <laughs> so, the, you know, the question was, the question was often, you know, do we need to tell our workforce about this, about either the possible exposure or the confirmed case? And so, yes, you do want to communicate, but no, you do not want to identify that. And actually you want to communicate that you cannot identify that individual. Um, and we put together some form documents in that regard, too, that we tailor because different locations have different requirements, different reporting requirements. Some uh, local orders have a requirement to report to the local public health department. So, again, something for employers to be aware of is, you know, what are the requirements? How should we document? And then what, uh, you know, what is the communication that we want to be issuing? But absolutely, you don't want to be identifying anybody by name. Um, and then also another question that kind of has come up frequently is how far do we have to extend this notice? So do you want to be sharing it with the building management if uh, if you have other uh, office space or other workers in the building, uh, suppliers or vendors, customers, you know, so that that is another consideration. And you want to be thinking about uh, close contact and other possible exposure in terms of making that decision. So in terms of the telework, I had a mediation yesterday, and one of the claims was that the employee two years ago had requested to work from home, and the company policy at the time was, you know, we really encourage in-person, face-to-face conduct that's consistent with our culture. Uh, certainly, we'll consider on a case-by-case -case basis, but we want to explore all options to accommodate in the workplace before we go to the work-from-home option. And this company went above and beyond and provided this person their own office and um, they tinted the windows and there was all sorts of ways to make sure that this employee could still come to the workplace and perform their essential job functions. And so, you know, in prepping for the mediation, we were, uh, we were really kind of thinking about how are we going to respond to an argument that now everybody works from home or most people work from home. And so how can you say that it's an undue hardship to allow an employee to work from home when we've all had to transition and, and accommodate and learn how to work this remote, um, this remote workforce. And the EEOC 
uh, the day after I submitted my mediation brief came out with a answer directly on point and basically said that just because an employer has been providing work from home or remote work during this pandemic, it's not an automatic right to continue to work from home once the employees transition back to the workplace. But the employer still needs to engage in that interactive dialogue, that's very important, to determine why the employee might not be able to come back to the workplace. Is it disability related? Is it uh, related to childcare issues? Is it fears you know, that may not be based on anything legitimate because the company is taking every step to uh, ensure that safe workplace, consistent with guidelines and so forth? Um, having that dialogue is going to be essential because that's a separate cause of action from a failure to accommodate or disability discrimination. But at least we have this guidance from the EEOC that says that it's not an automatic that just because you're accommodating or that you're allowing this work during this period of time that it needs to continue once we're transitioning back to the workplace. So I found that very helpful. Yeah, thank you. So I have a, a question about the COVID-19 testing and, and some employers are requiring testing or wondering if they can require testing. And we had a question where someone is saying the way that she's interpreting this data is that the employer can require testing if the employee presents a work for, of course, non-teleworking employees mm -hmm. pre presents a risk. I'm sorry, a risk. And would you agree with that, Nicole? The employer can require testing, uh, certainly if the employee presents a risk. Yes, yes. In that case, that is a reasonable business, you know, that's a, a position under which the employer is justified in, in requiring that test. Now, you want to be careful that you are implementing that protocol consistently and on an even-handed basis, that you're not, you know, targeting any certain population or any certain type of worker um, to undergo testing. Uh, but if it's done consistently and objectively and based on that legitimate business reason, then that is going to be consistent with the EOC and other guidance. Right. And, and Nicole, anything more to add on this slide? Because I have some, <laughs> some more questions for you, but they're not related to, oh. to this guidance here on this slide. Um, no, go for it. I'm open to other questions. Okay, great. The, we have a, I'm just going to state this one more time because I do, I'm still getting questions on this. The California Supplemental Paid Leave, which is a, AB 1867, only applies to employers with 500 or more employees. So, so that's, that's the category. There is a secondary category that it applies to, and that is to healthcare providers and emergency responders. So if you're a small business, oh, I'm sorry, Nicole, go ahead. Oh, I just wanted to add the one additional uh, caveat that it's healthcare providers, emergency responders who are not already providing FFCRA leave. Uh, thank you, yes. So if you're a, a an employer under 500 and you are not a healthcare responder or healthcare provider or emergency responder who has not um, provided FFCRA, then this does not apply to you, AB, 16, AB 1867. Correct. Mainly, it's for large employers, 500 or more employees. Okay. So I want to, I want to say, restate that, and totally understand that if if you're listening and you're uh, still confused, you can ask this question a hundred different ways on on right now. 
Please feel free to use that questions pane. I mean, that is why Nicole and I are here. That's what we want to do. We want to answer your question and we want to be, we want to clarify for you. So if you need to, to ask that question, feel free to do so. We will keep answering it until, until everyone is clear. That's, that's what's important to us. Yeah. Right, and I mentioned Nicole, we're, I have... we're putting together, yeah, we're putting together a kind of a one sheet on this that hopefully will break it down very clearly. And I'm happy to share that as well once it's finalized. Thank you. That would be so helpful. All right. So let's go back to count. these questions, Nicole, are going to be related back to the supplemental leave. For the pay stub requirement, do we have to add the available balance prior to them taking any applicable leave before the enactment went into place or just add it separately once they actually take the time? That's a, that's a good question. So the way it reads, the, the statute incorporates the existing California, certain provisions of the existing California paid sick leave law. So the, the current California paid sick leave law does have a paid sick leave, uh, a pay stub requirement to put the pay, available paid sick leave on the pay stub. So the understanding taking that is that there, there needs to be in addition to the pay stub for available supplemental paid sick leave. Um, the bill does say that it doesn't have to be on there until the next full pay period following the enactment of the, of the statute. Um, but you do want to do it similar to cal available paid sick leave. You'll do available supplemental paid sick leave. Thank you for clarifying. Sure. All right. Uh, another question. This one is re relates to FFCRA. Uh, this this person said that they're working from home and they, their kids are in school or having class at home, so they're missing out on a couple things. Um, Nicole and I can relate, <laughs> so mm -hmm. feel free to continue to ask. If you miss something, just let us know. So this person said, uh, "Teleworkers do." They're asking, "Teleworkers do not qualify for FFCRA?" Question mark. For FFCRA, right? So. Mm -hmm. So a teleworker may be eligible for FFCRA if they're unable to perform their job. So if they cannot perform one of the qualifying reasons, then they would be eligible. So that is a little bit different than California, which California, this new bill, applies to those who leave their residence, leave their home to perform their job. It doesn't apply to the teleworkers. FFCRA does apply to teleworkers who are unable to work because of the diagnosis, the symptoms, the childcare, one of the list of reasons. Thank you for saying that. And so I, I, I'll just clarify here that we're, for those listening on the line, we're talking today has been a, a little bit confusing because we're talking about two things, or really we've talked about three things, but we talked about two different bills that provide paid sick leave. We've talked about at times California supplemental paid sick leave under AB 1867. And at other times, mm -hmm. Nicole and I have talked about FSCRA. There are two different bills with two different provisions. So, Nicole, I'm glad you clarified that the two are not similar. Uh, so, um, sometimes we're talking about FSCRA, sometimes you were talking about the California Supplemental Paid Sick Leave. Exactly. So, FSCRA, yeah. and it, just to let everyone know here that's listening, I, I can practically, practically, I can tell you. There are certainly employees at our organization that are teleworking and they are uh, taking FFCRA leave because their children are at home. 
And if you're not fortunate enough, what happens is there, that could be a very valid reason to need to take intermittent FFCRA at the very least, because you need to ensure that your smaller children, especially, are online when they're supposed to be. Um, right. Uh, <laughs> that's important. That's important. My kids, I can tell you, mm -hmm. my twins are running around, probably just running around outside my door right now. I don't know what they're doing. <laughs> you probably heard them screaming outside that's my door. Right. I, I kicked, kicked out my second grade yeah. office mate. <laughs> That's right. I did. I did hear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. So let's. Uh, so hopefully we answered that one for you. Uh, in, someone asked a question regarding EEOC EEOC guidance. Can can we share the EEOC guidance regarding the telework update? Is, mm -hmm. Nicole, is it easy to tell us where to find that, or should it be a link? Yes. You know, why don't, why don't I send a link? Why don't you go ahead and send me an email and I'll send you a link and I'll cut and paste the specific questions about telework into the body of the email and just direct you because there is quite a bit of, of information there. Or if you search for the questions that have been updated as of 9-8-20, that's a helpful way to kind of go to the more recent updates. Got it. Okay, so Nicole, I'll get that link from you. We'll make sure everyone gets it. But for the person who posed the question, uh, you can also do a Google search and you should be able to, to find that as well if you need it earlier than I'm able to provide it. Oh, I have a great okay. question here, Nicole. This one I've seen many, many times. If an employer requires testing, is the employer required to pay for the testing? Very good question. So you can certainly speak to, I, I think part of that, you know, is it covered or mm -hmm. uncovered? Um, in terms of if it is a requirement by the company, then the company does not want to pass that cost on to the employee. You do want to pay for that. That's a requirement under the labor code 2802. Um, in addition, you want to think about paying for that time that the employee spends undergoing the testing. Um, and then if they report to work and are sent away to get a test, there's reporting time pay requirements to consider as well. So those are kind of the, the main highlights and then if you want to speak to the uh the benefits or the reimbursement through the benefits i know that that's probably a common question too yes definitely so the answer to the question is is the employer required to pay for testing is yes and even time taken to go and get the test done now the second piece of this that i can speak to really well is well instead of the employer having to pay, could we somehow have the insurance company pick up that cost, the medical insurance company, um, for your group benefits that you offer? And if the employee is exhibiting symptoms or what we call, if, med if, it, if the test is medically appropriate, then you can, the employee can use their insurance and the insurance will pay 100% of it due to a provision in the CARES Act. And that's if the test is medically appropriate. So if the employee is exhibiting symptoms or they have known exposure and they go to get tested and they say one of two things, I, I, I've had some exposure or I'm exhibiting symptoms, the provider will code the bill to the insurance company so that the insurance company knows it's medically appropriate and the insurance company processes the bill with no copay or cost share. So that is, that is how the insurance company would pick up the testing. In any other instance, except for essential workers, uh, the employer is required to pay for testing. And we talk about this at length in the next couple of slides. Um, so if you stick around for that, you'll hear that. 
And speaking of, I didn't realize we were at 11.08 a.m., so I will say that if you're not able to, to join us for the rest of this call, we completely understand. Feel free to drop off. You will get a recording of the entire webinar Monday afternoon, maybe Tuesday, but we're going to shoot for Monday afternoon. So if you need to drop off now, Nicole and I are still going to hang around to the rest of the presentation, but we understand and want to be cognizant of your time, but feel free to drop off if you need to. All right. Can the employer require testing of employees who worked remote during COVID and are now asked to come back to the office? Could you repeat that? I'm sorry. Sure. Can an employer require testing of employees who worked remotely during COVID and they're now coming back into the office? Oh, yes, yes. Again, so if you do it consistently, if that's the company policy that it's applied even-handedly without any sort of um, targeting any particular group, and based on that legitimate business reason, then it can be required. Again, it, you want to be um, not testing for antibodies, but the viral testing. Thank you. We have another question. The employer is an emergency department that is contracted by a hospital with 35 plus clinicians and three admins. Are we, they say, are we eligible for supplemental leave? But I think what they mean is, are we uh, a covered employer? Mm. Okay, so that question I think needs to be analyzed a little bit closer because we need to look at how many employees um, you know, do they fall under the FFCRA? Do they fall under the California Supplement, that healthcare uh, worker carve out? And so I think we, I'm happy to talk that further, but it would probably be better done offline. Thank you, Nicole. All right, we have some more here. I'm gonna try to get to. Can you use FFCRA time off for distance learning or is it, or is it specific to childcare? Well, it's for school closure. So, um, meaning in-person school. So, if the child is doing remote learning, then FFCRA can be taken for that reason. Um, there actually is some updated FAQs from the Department of Labor regarding uh, schools that are in-person, but the, the family opts to continue with the remote learning. And in that case, the FAQs say that no, because there is an in-person option, um, but the, the family is deciding to keep the children home, that FFCRA would not kick in in that case. But if the school's closed and there's no in-person option, um, then it's, you know, it's not just that um, whether or not the child is actually in school or not, they're going to need supervision and care. And so that's the purpose of the FFCRA leave. Another one, under FFCRA, for teleworkers, if they're unable to work due to illness, can we still ask them if it was due to COVID or do we need to wait for them to tell us? So essentially, can mm -hmm. we not ask them questions since they are teleworking? Okay, so you do want to actually ask them because you need to have that documentation um, that they meet one of the qualifying reasons for the FFCRA leave. And so um, it may be COVID-related, it may be caring for a family member, it may be because of a school or a daycare closure, um, but getting that reason is important because of the documentation required to seek the tax credit. Um, so you, you can ask that question. Um, we, I mentioned a form that we have available. Posing it you know, in the shape of a form is really helpful. It can be a check the box. Um, and the employer can then gather the information that they need and have that in a file uh, for, for purposes of going forward. Perfect. And we have one last question before we move on. 
just out of curiosity's sake, why would the antibody test not be recommended for the employer to require versus the viral test? That's a good question. Any and the current, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the current position is that it's it's less reliable, it's less accurate, um, and that it's not it, it has the potential for being misused at this point. Um, and it also doesn't say, serve the same purpose. So it doesn't serve the purpose of saying whether somebody is currently infected or currently able to transmit. And so for those reasons, that's the, the current position on the antibody testing. Um, that's what the CDC has communicated. Okay, so we're gonna move on <laughs> to COVID testing. Uh, thank you, Nicole, that's so helpful. You, you knew way more about that than I thought. That's why I kind of laughed before <laughs> I handed it over to you. I was like, oh, uh, is this, does this require speculation? But uh, no, you had your answer right there. Um, <laughs> So COVID testing, I'm going to go through these slides. Now, we spoke about it last month, or I spoke about it last month at length, because what happened was for school. So now I am only speaking about schools as essential workers. There was, for a few weeks there, the, the schools had heard that there was going to be mandatory testing of their staff before coming on site. And we finally got some California Department of Public Health facts. And I've got the link there on the screen. So, it, but you can also Google this. If you put in, you know, even some of these keywords that you'll see in that link, you'll see it because it's not clickable, but you'll get the slides afterwards. Um, but you can go there and you can see that, yes, it, it is. School staff should be tested. And there are facts when you click on that link that will make it fairly clear. And so they even give an example of how the recommended frequency, you know, including all staff being tested over two months, where 25% of the staff are tested every two weeks or 50% every month to rotate which staff members are tested. So they give you a nice example there that you can follow. And the question became, who's going to pay for the testing of school employees and students? Uh, and, and then the question became, as more, so what happened is, let me say this, let me back up. What happened is on-site vendors who come on-site and perform COVID testing, they, they were started to advertise heavily and started to market themselves heavily because they saw a need. You know, schools are going to need tests and they're going to need on-site testing. Uh, but the department, you know, but the, the insurance carrier doesn't have to necessarily cover your on-site vendors. So there's a little bit of, of um, issue there. So you want to be sure if you bring on an on-site vendor, you want to ensure that it's going to be covered, or at least you know how much you're going to have to come out of pocket as the school. And what happened is the Department of Managed Healthcare did file an emergency regulation that it requires group health plans that are fully insured in the state of California to pay for COVID-19 testing for all essential workers, which of course includes school staff. And um, so then we had schools say, well, that means they have to pay for our on-site vendor, right? Well, no, that does not mean that because the emergency regulation outlined in what instance the group health plan has to pay, and it's not all instances. The group health plan has to pay only if you call them first and you, uh, you call the group health plan as the employee, I would call and say, I'm an essential worker, I need to be tested. 
And from there, the group health plan then has 48 hours to direct you to a testing site. And at that point, the group health plan will cover the cost minus any applicable co-pays or co-insurance that will be due under the plan. So I hope that makes it clear. There are not many carriers that are going to pay for testing of an on-site when, it, when it's done by an on-site vendor unless symptoms were already showing, so unless it was medically appropriate. And switch sides here and talk about that in more detail. So this, this is where we talk about voluntary testing, where there's no state order to test employees. Now, is it best practice to test? Uh, so we talk about that. I mean, some do, some don't. We just caution that employers consider the issues that could arise from testing, including pro potential privacy issues to frequency of testing to false negatives and positive. So if you're not at school and you're asking, well, oh, are employers testing? Should I be doing that? Um, well, at this time, the CDC does not recommend testing unless it's done, done after a known exposure in the workplace. So keep that in mind. We talked about this at length. Can an employer require mandatory testing? Nicole already answered that question. You can see the answer on the screen. And the, the million dollar question, will our group health plan pay for it? That is going to depend. For non-essential employees, the group health plan must cover testing when it's medically appropriate. It, that one is pretty simple, fairly easy to, to, to grasp. If for non-essential employees, the group health plan covers when it's medically appropriate. For essential employees, which include schools, that are enrolled in fully insured medical plans out of the state of California, the state of California does mandate the insurer to cover the test minus co-pays and co-insurance. However, there are restrictions. The, the essential employee themselves must call their health care provider or the group health plan to essentially get a referral to a testing facility. I can tell you that some of the carriers are starting to release their response to the essential worker regulation that was, was uh, put out, and I think it was the end of July or maybe sometime in August. So Blue Shield just sent an email to its employers. So if you have a Blue Shield group health plan, you should have gotten this email on Monday where it talks about where can employees get tested and it's really helpful for essential workers, including school staff, because Blue Shield says, you don't have to call us. If you go to CVS, Rite Aid, Walgreens, or state testing sites, the employee does not have to call us. You can go right there. So the Blue Shield um, link that would have been included in the email, if you're a Blue Shield client, you can click on the link and you can find all available CVS, Rite Aid, and Walgreens testing sites. And your employee can go straight there and get tested if they're essential, and they do not have to worry about getting any type of referral. So that, that makes it really nice. So that's, that's Blue Shield, though. If you're a Blue Shield client, you're listening, and you did not get that email from Blue Shield, contact your broker client manager, and, and they will send that information to you. All right, I'm going to stop to see if we have any questions on that that I can answer before we switch gears to proposed legislation. Okay, no, we don't have any questions, good. I'm just gonna spend a few moments here on proposed legislation. When we, we've been talking about another stimulus bill for quite a long time now, and I, I don't know if that's gonna happen or not. I've been reading so much, and, and there are so many plausible scenarios. The, the worst case or best case, depending on who you are, would be that nothing gets passed. 
and there is not going to be another one. There's certainly a lot of activity out there, one being the HEROES Act and the other one being the HEALS Act. And I've kind of outlined what they are here, but we, we went over this the last time we spoke in the last episode, so we don't necessarily need to do that. But the whole, I guess what I'd like to leave you with is this is still a moving target. There's nothing has been passed. Nothing is for sure. And it could very well be that we're not going to see any stimulus package passed before the election or maybe even at all, you know, best or worst case scenario there. So um, if you're saying, oh, something was passed and I missed it, no, it, it has not been passed. I, I know a lot of legislators would like to see something happen before the election for obvious reasons. And a lot are hoping it happens before the end of the fiscal year, which is at the end of this month. So we may see a flurry of activity in the next few weeks, but then again, we may not. So it's interesting to follow that. Nicole, anything to add there? Um, not, I don't have any other insight, unfortunately. I wish I did. <laughs> right, right. Me too. Okay. So issues from last week, we always like to talk about, well, what have we heard from last week? What's new? Um, always getting questions about COVID-19 testing for schools because the Department of Public Health is mandating testing for schools. So that's why we get so many questions. That's always out there. I had an employer ask me about an employee who traveled internationally and what they should do. And, and I thought, oh, well, you should have a COVID travel policy. Or I said something along the lines of, what does your COVID travel policy say you should do? And, mm -hmm. and they didn't have one. So I wanted to just put this out there that you probably should. And Nicole, you mentioned you wrote a legal alert about this. So you, can you just kind of expand on that for a moment? Absolutely, yeah. So it, if you're able to put the link to the alert into the chat oh, box, yeah. that would be great. Um, but if not, it came out on uh, right before Labor Day on September 2nd. And basically we uh, address many of the frequently asked questions when it comes to employee travel. And one of the main questions is, can an employer prohibit or restrict personal travel? Um, and there's kind of some, some different factors to consider, <clears throat> excuse me, particularly here in California, where there is a restriction on employers' ability to interfere with lawful off-duty conduct. Um, it's lawful to travel. It's something that doesn't necessarily um, directly interfere with the company or with the business. Um, and this statute prohibiting this uh, interference with lawful off-duty conduct is generally interpreted to involve political activity um, or anything that does directly harm the workplace uh, and has that, that very clear connection. But it's possible that a court could apply those protections to other lawful off-duty conduct like personal travel. On the flip side, we have the uh, general duty clause under OSHA and other um, state requirements to ensure a safe workplace. So on balance, what we're recommending is that employers have a travel policy, require employees to disclose any travel plans or recent travel, uh, remind employees of CDC and state and local recommendations, and then consider if there's any state or local mandate requiring self-isolation or quarantine post-travel. And again, that's going to be a very kind of a case-by-case -case analysis because different states have different requirements and different localities have different requirements. Sometimes a city and a county might have different uh, guidance on this. And so it's important to look at what is in place 
and and apply accordingly. And then the question of, you know, is the employee then entitled to maybe FFCRA or some other supplemental paid sick leave if you are requiring them to uh, self-quarantine or isolate during that post-travel period? And that would go to usually whether there's an order in place uh, that mandates or whether they've been advised by a healthcare provider uh, to isolate or self-quarantine um, or whether they're ex ex experiencing symptoms and seeking a diagnosis. Those are generally the categories that would trigger the pay requirement. There is a, a couple more FAQs in our legal alert about that question of pay um, and other kind of considerations for employers to keep in mind when it comes to travel during this period of time. Awesome. And I was able to put the, the link to your legal alert in the chat box. So if you're listening and um, something that Nicole said in the travel policy kind of uh, kind of reminds you or refreshes you that you might need to look at this, feel free to go to the chat box in your tool pane and you'll see that link right there. And of course, uh, toilet paper talk, supplemental sick leave. I've gotten many questions a day on this since I published my own alerts are coming out from Bolton and company. So we know that this is something many employers have questions on. And the reason it's, it's here, where I put it here, and I want to talk about it again, it's just to say, if you have questions, if you're confused, uh, you know, you're not the only one. It, it, so many other employers are saying, okay, what now? And with all of these different local ordinances, state ordinance, and the, and the coordination of the two and what you should be doing, it is, it is so tough. I, I can't imagine as an employer having to have to sit through all of that alone, which is nice that we have Nicole on the line today. But also keep in mind, Nicole is, um, you can always reach out to Nicole or to myself or to your Bolton client manager, and we can get you in touch with Nicole so she could potentially help, help you further or, or do a more detailed analysis for you. Of course. All right, we have some common FAQs next. We've talked about the answers to all of these. We've, we've already went over in the interest of time. I don't think that we need to go over. Um, yeah, all of these we did talk about at length. And so we will we'll go ahead and skip this and move over to some resources. I always share these resources. You know, the Bolton blog, of course, is one way to get your information. If you have benefit-related questions to anything we discuss and you're a Bolton client, feel free to contact your client management team. Also, if you're a Bolton client, you have access to Think HR, which is a great HR resource. So for anything that's not insurance-related, for example, Think HR is going to have a lot of that supplemental information there, including sample forms. So an FSCRA leave request form, return to work checklist, et cetera, et cetera. And for employment matters, since the beginning of, of when we started doing that, I've always said Fisher Phillips has, an, it, which is Nicole's employer, Fisher, Fisher Phillips mm -hmm. has a publicly available website with so much information, and it's, and it's organized very nicely and neatly and intuitively. So if you have not seen the Fisher Phillips website, their COVID resources, click on Fisher Phillips or type in fisherphillips.com, go to their COVID data bank. I believe it's COVID. It says COVID somewhere down towards the middle, right-hand side of the page. Click on it. You'll see sample templates that you can download, legal alerts, facts, 
uh, checklists. Just it's amazing the information they put out there for the public to have free of charge. Of course, not everything they do can be free of charge because <laughs> uh, we're all running businesses. <laughs> uh, but you know the, what they've done is is really spectacular so far that you could Thank use you. this resource. Mm-hmm. And Michelle, I'll just add that if anybody wants to be added to our mailing list to directly receive legal alerts, um, you can do that on our website. And if there's any issues, feel free to reach out to me. I'm happy to put you on our list. Oh, yes. Signing up for those legal alerts is amazing, too. That way you don't have to, you know, you can get as many resources as possible. I'm signed up for those legal alerts. I will tell you that. So um, that's really nice, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you, it's not a clickable link, but it's fisherphillips.com. You can scroll down about midway, and you'll see a box there that you can click on that discusses COVID resources. Click on that, and you can explore the entire sections that they have built out. All right, that is it for us today. Thank you for sticking around. Please do not forget a copy of the slides and a recording will be available. Our marketing department will send that out usually Monday afternoon. It may be uh, Tuesday or so, but you will receive that email after the presentation the next few days. Thanks so much. And thank you, Nicole. Everyone have a great day. Thank you. Take care.